Hi everyone, welcome back once again to Logical Bible Study. We're continuing to look at the Gospel of Matthew, really diving into the text and seeing what the riches are that are there on the literal level. That's what we're all about in this podcast, helping you get at the literal sense of the text. What does it mean on the most fundamental level, which is where we're supposed to start as Catholics when we're studying the Bible. So we're looking today at Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 36, and I think this will be a familiar passage for most of you who are listening, but I think there's also some things in here that you might have missed before as well. So Matthew 14, verses 22 to 36, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side, while he would send the crowds away. After sending the crowds away, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, while the boat, by now far out on the lake, was battling with a heavy sea, for there was a headwind. In the fourth watch of the night, he went towards them, walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It is a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But at once Jesus called out to them, saying, Courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. It was Peter who answered, Lord, he said, if it is you, tell me to come to you across the water. Come, said Jesus. Then Peter got out of the boat and started walking towards Jesus across the water. But as soon as he felt the force of the wind, he took fright and began to sink. Lord, save me, he cried. Jesus put out his hand at once and held him. Man of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And as they got back into the boat, the wind dropped. The men in the boat bowed down before him and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. Having made the crossing, they came came to land at Gennesaret. When the local people recognized him, they spread the news through the whole neighborhood and took all that was sick to him begging him just to let them touch the fringe of his cloak. And all those who touched it were completely cured. So this passage is very familiar to most people. Jesus walks on water. It's the miracle that a lot of people think of um, when we're asked about Jesus' miracles. And in a lot of ways, it is quite a straightforward narrative. There's nothing in here that's particularly difficult to grasp. However, there's a few nuances that are worth looking at. So firstly, the context here is important. They've just fed the, the 5,000 people by the Sea of Galilee. This is only minutes later. This, that miracle has literally just happened. It's the same day. It's only minutes later. Verse 22, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. So they have a boat that they've been using on the Sea of Galilee. Now, Jesus is probably planning to do this miracle. He knows what he's going to do tonight. So the timing is right for him to do this miracle. But for that to work, he needs for them to be in the boat and for him to not be in the boat. So he's setting up the situation. He tells them to go on ahead to the other side while he would send the crowds away. Now, Mark's version is a bit more specific. Mark's version says that Jesus sent them across to Bethsaida. Now, that's not very far from where they are. It's just on the other side of the lake and the lake is only about eight miles across. So it looks like the direction that he's sending them in, if, if they did the miracle on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which it looks like they probably did, he's sending them across to the northwest side where Bethsaida is, which is actually near Capernaum. 
So verse 23, after sending the crowds away, now it's worth noticing that Jesus at this point actually tells the crowds to go away. Um, We often miss that. So he goes up into the hills by himself. So the Sea of Galilee, even if you go there today, it's surrounded by these small rolling hills. There were actually hills um, surrounding the sea. So he goes up into the hills by himself to pray. This is one of these scenes where Jesus goes to pray by himself. So he actually goes looking for solitude. Remember that before the miracle of the 5,000, Jesus had actually been hoping to have some time by himself. He was looking for some rest time, and now finally he gets it. Jesus often does this in the Gospels. It's Prayer is the source of his energy, and he's got this constant balance between work and rest, and he's telling the apostles that they need the same. They need to work, but pray as well. When evening came, he was there alone. Now, given what happened in the feeding of the 5,000, remember the apostles said to him, it's getting close to evening and we need to feed them. And now it says when evening came. So it's probably not that long after Jesus has done the multiplication of the loaves. This all happens pretty quickly. The loaves are multiplied. The crowd gets fed. Jesus sends them away. And then he sends the disciples into the boat and he goes up the hill. This could have all happened within about an hour. Verse 22, while the boat by now far out on the lake, so they're probably out in the middle of the lake perhaps, was battling with a heavy sea for there was a headwind. So this is the start of the evening and already they're battling with a strong wind in the sea. Now big storms were quite common in the Sea of Galilee because wind would whip down the hills and it would cause these quite significant storms. Now don't get confused between this and another story. Uh, of when Jesus calms the storm on the Sea of Galilee. That also involves a boat, and that also involves Jesus doing a miracle and the disciples being scared, but it's actually a different story. It's easy to get them confused. So that has already happened earlier in Matthew. Here, we're not talking about the miracle of Jesus calming the storm. But still, the disciples here are caught in a storm, and it's evening, Mark's version says the apostles here are worn out from rowing. So there's no sails on these boats. They have oars. So the uh, apostles are trying to row against the wind, apparently. So as I said, don't get this confused with uh, Jesus calming the storm. So in the case we're looking at, there is a strong wind, but it's not life-threatening. The apostles are not saying things like, Lord, we're going to die in this storm. We don't see that in this story. So it's not life-threatening, but it is still a significant wind. Now, Jesus is up on the hill. He probably can't see individual people on the boat, but he can probably see that the boat is not moving, that it's struggling a bit. Verse 25, now the time skips a bit, in the fourth watch of the night. Now, what does it mean by watch of the night? Well, according to the Roman system at this time, the 12 hours of the night from about 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. were broken up into four watches. The last watch would have been between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., So we're now at 3 a.m. Remember that last time we saw Jesus, he was going to pray and it was 6 p.m. And now it's 3 a.m. So apparently Jesus has been praying for several hours and the disciples have been battling the storm for some time as well. It's 3 a.m. in the morning now. Verse 25, Jesus went towards them walking on the lake. Now, this is a miracle. Clearly, it's a miracle. There's no magic going on here. People have tried to come up with natural explanations of how this could be done, but it's clearly presented as a miracle. We're not given an explanation of how Jesus does it. He just does it with his power. He walks on the water. It appears the reason he does this, considering that the apostles are not going to die in this case, they would be okay, 
The reason he walks them on water is to display his power. He's doing this deliberately to show them or to get them to think about who he is. He wants his disciples to realize his identity. And he believes the timing is now right to do this particular miracle. Maybe if he did it earlier, they wouldn't be able to handle it, but he decides the timing is now right for him to walk on the water. So we don't know how Jesus does it. Maybe it's some sort of change in the water molecules or maybe a change in Jesus' feet. C.S. Lewis actually has some really interesting comments about this miracle. He, In his book called Miracles, there's a part where he talks about this miracle of Jesus walking on the water and he sort of frames it as like the water, the created water was waiting, just waiting for the creator to set foot on it so that then those water molecules could rearrange and accommodate their creator. And he's got quite beautiful language about this miracle. So Jesus walks on the water, verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. And it says they thought he was a ghost. Now, Jews did believe in ghosts or disembodied spirits, and they believed that they were connected to the work of Satan. So if you saw a ghost, it was considered to be demonic. They probably don't think it's the ghost of Jesus because it's dark. They probably don't see that it looks like Jesus. They just see a ghost of some sort. It's dark and they can't see very far. So it's natural for them to say it must be a ghost. So they cry out in fear. They're actually freaking out. Verse 20, verse 27, Jesus says, courage or take heart is what it more literally says there. He says, it is I, do not be afraid. Why does he say that? Well, they're freaking out. So Jesus' main reasoning here is stop freaking out. I'm not a ghost. It is I, take heart, it's me. But there could be more going on here as well, because it is I in Greek is ego I me. And that literally translate, uh, translates as I am. And of course, that's God's name as revealed in the burning bush and in other places in the Old Testament. So maybe Jesus here is actually saying I am, as in I'm God. There might be some of that going on. Verse 28, it was Peter who answered. Now, this is significant. It's none of the other apostles do this. Peter speaks up on behalf of the apostles. This is one of those verses that we often forget about, but it clearly shows that Jesus is the leader of the apostles and that he is prompted by God in a special way that the others aren't. So it's foreshadowing his future leadership of the church as well. He says, Lord, if it was, if it is you, tell me to come to you across the water. Now, this is actually a profound act of faith on Peter's part. He says, if it, if it is you, Jesus, and then he knows that Jesus will give Peter the ability to walk to him on water. So it's actually an act of faith. He's saying, Lord, I believe that you have the power to call me out to walk on the water. Even me, I can walk on the water if you give me the power to, if it is you that I'm speaking to. So Peter is putting himself on the line here. He's willing to give it a try and walk out on the lake. There's, there's actually a profound level of faith going on here if you think about it. So Jesus simply says one word to him, come. And that's quite beautiful. So Jesus accepts Peter's conditions, accepts the proposal, and he invites Peter to follow him out onto the water. And of course, this in a way, you could say it foreshadows his future uh, role as the first pope. He's calling Peter to uh, have faith and to follow him and to uh, be in touch with the supernatural powers that would enable him to do these things. So there's some interesting things going on here. So Peter gets out of the boat and starts walking towards Jesus across the water. So clearly this is a supernatural miracle. Peter doesn't have this ability himself. 
Now, the source of the miracle is Jesus, certainly. Jesus makes the miracle possible. However, as we'll see, it's Peter's faith that allows the miracle to actually happen. If Peter doesn't have the faith, it seems that this miracle would not have taken place. So there's this interesting theology in the Gospels of we need Jesus' will and people's cooperation in order for the miracle to happen. We have to let God's grace work through us, in other words. Verse 30, as soon as he felt the force of the wind, he took fright and began to sink. So when Peter begins to doubt, the miracle becomes less effective. Did you notice that? As soon as he starts to have unbelief, the miracle stops working. And this reflects the gospel's theme that Jesus cannot do miracles in places where there's a lack of faith. The actual Greek here says that when Peter saw the wind, and that might imply to Matthew's readers that Peter took his eyes off Jesus and started to look at the wind, because it actually says here, saw, when when Peter saw the wind. Now, often you'll hear sermons about uh, what this means in terms of we shouldn't take our eyes off Jesus, um, all those sorts of things. There's probably not supposed to be a universal principle here about faith and miracles. This is a special one-off miracle for Peter. There probably are spiritual applications of this text here, but we need to be careful because the literal sense, it's a one-off miracle involving Peter and Jesus. So he's sinking and he cries, Lord, save me. So Peter is clearly afraid, but at least he has faith that Jesus can help him here. Jesus put out his hand at once and held him. So Jesus immediately helps as soon as Peter asks for it. Notice that the language here, he held him or he caught him. So it's quite a dramatic scene. You can imagine Jesus' arm. So Jesus standing on the water still, and his arm reaches down uh, to Peter, who's sinking. And he literally grabs him and pulls him out of the water. And he says to Peter, man of little faith, why did you doubt? So Jesus here says, notice the implication. If Peter had not doubted, if Peter had maintained his faith, Uh, then Jesus would have helped him reach Jesus. So he would have been able to keep walking on the water if he he hadn't have started doubting. Now, Jesus is not angry here when he says, man of little faith, why did you doubt? It's actually a statement more of correction rather than condemnation. He wants to encourage Peter to have stronger faith in the future. So basically, he wants him to not make the same mistake again. Verse 32, as they got into the boat, the wind dropped. So presumably God stopped the wind in order to help the disciples see that Jesus has power over nature. Jesus has already done this once in chapter 8, in verse 23 to 27, when Jesus actually calms the storm. That's what Jesus did in that story. He calmed the storm. But in that story, he rebuked the wind, whereas here he doesn't say anything. The wind just stops. It dies down automatically. When this happens, the men in the boat bowed down before him. So the disciples apparently realize Jesus' identity and they start to worship him as soon as he gets into the boat and the wind dies down. And they say, truly, you are the son of God. Now, there's some debate here among scholars about what to make of this because Mark's version, they don't say this. They actually seem to be quite befuddled and confused about what to make of this incident and doesn't say anything about them worshiping Jesus. Um, In fact, the implication we get from Mark's version Mark's version says that the apostles' minds were closed. So if we're to take these words when they say, truly you are the son of God, if we're to say that they actually did say this on this occasion, then it must be not genuine. They must not really understand that he's the son of God. They may be just saying it out of amazement, but they don't really understand who he is. 
It's only later that they fully grasp Jesus' identity. And even then, uh, they seem to not quite get it. So there's some debate among scholars of, did they say this on this occasion? How do we reconcile Mark's version where they seem confused about Jesus' identity here versus Matthew's version where they confess that he's the son of God and whether uh, Matthew has inserted some words from a different occasion? And that's quite possible. So there's some debate about what the exact words that the apostles said here were. Now, Jesus has just calmed the waves. He's calmed a storm. This might have echoes to some other passages in the Old Testament, particularly Psalm 107, which says this, God satisfies the thirsty, fills the hungry with good things. He spoke and roused a storm wind. It tossed the waves on high. He hushed the storm to a murmur. The waves of the sea were stilled. So, interesting link there. And it's possible that for the disciples, and maybe also for Matthew's readers, When Jesus calmed the storm, they might have understood this as an action that only God can perform. So maybe they would have started to look, the genuinely look at Jesus as God. Verse 34. So we're now uh, changing the scene a bit. A couple of hours later, having made the crossing, they came to land at Gennesaret. So Gennesaret is close to Capernaum. Originally, Jesus had actually sent them to Bethsaida, uh, but they land in Gennesaret, which is pretty close. Gennesaret is a region of quite fertile plains along the western shore of the sea. So it appears to be, this is one theory that scholars have, is that Jesus told them at the start to go towards Bethsaida, but then he actually intended for them to to land at Gennesaret. And so perhaps Jesus told them to go to Bethsaida just so he could walk across a specific part of the lake. Interesting. Verse 35, when the local people recognized him, they spread the news through the whole neighborhood. So Jesus' name has spread far and wide, and he's quite famous by this point. And they took all that were sick to him. So they're bringing people to him on stretches from all over the place. And Mark's version here says that they brought the sick to him wherever he was. So Jesus is moving around the Capernaum region in the next few days as normal, but the crowds are following him and word is spreading quickly. So they're bringing all the sick people to him. This is probably one of the times in Jesus' ministry where all sorts of healings were done that we don't have recorded. Jesus probably did many miracles on these days that we'll never get to hear about until we get to heaven. Now, many of the sick people here, verse 36, it says they're begging him just to let them touch the fringe of his cloak. So the sick people believe that if they could even just touch a part of Jesus' clothing, they'll be healed. And that just is a testament to the amazing power of Jesus. They don't even have to touch him. They can just touch his clothing. At least that's what they believe. Now, when it says the fringe of his cloak, that's actually a specific part of the cloak. It's the tassel. The tassel is not a decoration. It's not just a random bit on the end of the cloak. It's the long fringe that Jewish men would wear on the corners of their prayer shawl. And it's actually a sign, a Jewish sign of their allegiance to the law of Moses. And we see that in Numbers 15. So Jesus has tassels on his cloak, which shows that he's the model of faithfulness to the covenant. He has tassels on his prayer shawl. And they see that as kind of symbolic of his religious authority, and that's why they want to touch it. All those who touched it were completely cured. So apparently lots of people are touching his cloak, and he's allowing it to happen. Now, this is pretty similar to the woman with the hemorrhage. Remember the the woman with the issue of blood who touches his cloak, and she's healed immediately. So it's similar in that it's the people's faith that saves them. The cloak is not a magical cloak. It's a combination of Jesus' power plus people's faith that brings about the healing. 
And this, of course, this passage as well as others in the Gospels, links well with the Catholic teaching on relics, which is that uh, certain items that belong to particularly holy people can be channels of God's grace uh, when God allows that to be the case. So when people's faith uh, meet particular relics, there can be some sort of transfer of God's grace through the relics. It's interesting. So this is the end of chapter 14 of Matthew. And there's a whole section at the start of Matthew 15, which is the next part, but we never get to hear that in the lectionary. So it all gets a bit messy in the next bit here. So verses 1 to 2 and 10 to 14 of chapter 15, which is the next bit, they're read on Tuesday in week 18 of Ordinary Time, but only in year A. So verses 1 to 2, 10 to 14, you'll only get to hear them on year A, not in B and C. Usually with most weekday things, you hear them every year, but this is one of those ones that's only on a weekday in year A. Now verses 3 to 8, which is about the traditions of men, which is often used against Catholic teaching actually, So verses 3 to 8, as well as verses 15 to 20, and that's the passage where Jesus says, it is what comes out of the heart which defiles a man. So those two passages, which are also at the start of Matthew 15, they're never actually read in the lectionary. So if you want to hear those missing parts of the start of Matthew chapter 15, which we'll be starting to look at in the coming days, if you want to hear those missing bits that you won't hear at Mass, then we'll cover those as bonus episodes of the podcast. And the idea is, if you become a Patreon supporter of the ministry, you can get access to all the bonus episodes. And once they're all released, you will have heard the entire text of all four Gospels. You won't get to hear that through the regular podcast. You get to hear most passages, but not all of them, because there's some which are never read in the lectionary. And if you want to hear those, if you want to hear an exegesis of those missing verses then the way to do that is by becoming a, uh, becoming a financial partner of the ministry. Um, even just $10 a month goes a long way to help uh, the ministry reach more people. So please prayerfully consider um, doing that. And there's information about that in the show notes. Let's now turn to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Where does today's passage from Matthew 14 inform Catholic teaching? There's one place, and that's in the passage about the title Lord. It says, very often in the Gospels, people address Jesus as Lord. This title testifies to the respect and trust of those who approach him for help and healing. At the prompting of the Holy Spirit, Lord expresses the recognition of the divine mystery of Jesus. In the encounter with the risen Jesus, the title becomes adoration. My Lord and my God. It thus takes on a connotation of love and affection that remains proper to the Christian tradition. It is the Lord. So this paragraph makes reference to a number of passages in the Gospels where people call Jesus Lord, and we hear that today. When Peter is sinking, he says, save me, Lord. So we'll leave it there for today. I hope you've learned something new. There's always fascinating things to discover in the text of Matthew's Gospel, and we'll continue to look at chapter 15 in the coming days.